in the Old Testament and the book of Exodus. The Old Testament and the book of Exodus are going to be in the 23rd chapter. We have been uh, studying the uh, judgments uh, of the Lord, and uh, in the following several chapters, since chapter 21, chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments, chapter 21, 22, and 23, we have observed the judgments of the Lord, and we've tried to uh, categorize some of those judgments in groups. Now as we come to Exodus chapter 23, uh, we are reading some judgments with regards to the judicial courts and some things, some areas where both a plaintiff, witnesses, and judges must consider things that they ought to do and things that they ought not to do. In the midst of this, he gives the, the general spirit that ought to be present among the children of Israel. Sometimes if we're not careful, we come to the New Testament and we might say that Jesus, he taught a new law. You have heard that had been said by them of old, love thy neighbor, hate thine enemy. The truth is the Old Testament never taught that. It doesn't teach that. But the interpretation of the Old Testament had been corrupted to where those who were rabbis around the time of Jesus Christ and those who were teaching the Jews before the time of Christ had strongly influenced the opinions of the Jews of that day. And the word of God had been distorted by the traditions of men and by the interpretations of the rabbis throughout the centuries. And uh, what, what we find here in uh, Exodus chapter 23, uh, I think will, help, will be helpful to us to show that uh, the idea that we are to love our enemies is not a New Testament truth. It's a Bible truth, the whole of the Bible, and we'll find that here. And so we're going to begin reading in Exodus chapter 23, begin reading in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 9. I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 23, and beginning in verse 1, if you're able to stand. And the Word of God says, Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. Neither shalt thou, count, uh, shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause. Keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked." And thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise, and perverteth the words of the righteous. Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, 
For ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now hold your place here, and if you turn with me to the Gospel of John, if you want to keep your hand here and turn with me to John chapter 7. We come to the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus had been accused of having a devil. Jesus answers them. And his conclusion is found in verse 24. John 7 verse 24. Jesus says, Judge not according to the appearance, but... Judge righteous judgment. Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. I want to pause here, before we begin here, that the idea of judging and judgment today has been maligned, has been mischaracterized today. When he says here, judge not according to appearance, Those who are beholding the life of Christ were judging him and says he has a devil. They were judging him because part of what they believed about the Messiah, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, they had a certain prejudice about what Messiah would be like and what he would do. And he didn't do what they thought he would do. And their prejudice blinded them of the ability to judge righteous judgment. And with those things in mind, again, we are not to fall into the category where, well, judge not, don't judge. That idea is false. We are commanded indeed to judge. But if we are judging, we must judge righteous judgment. That's what Exodus 23 is about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Lord, help us to judge righteous judgment. To do what is right, not for our own sake, or not because there is any sense of justice in us, because true justice belongs to you. And if we are to judge righteous judgment, we will indeed reflect your character, but if we fail to judge righteously, then we will not reflect your holy character. So, Lord, help us to understand the importance of what is being taught in this passage, but also that we might understand uh, the great holy character that you possess and that you wanted your people to display in their own lives. So give us understanding this evening uh, by the direction of your Holy Spirit and by the clarity of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Judge righteous judgment. So far as we've looked in the last few chapters, we've seen that there are judgments that are classified as far as uh, how the people are to act between one another. The judgments of God are those uh, that deal with human interaction. The law can be classified into three separate categories. We may say that there is the moral law of God. They're found in the Ten Commandments. And those are universal, and those are the commandments that are written to the very heart of man. Romans chapter 2 tells us. That's the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. But then you have what we refer to, and we're going to begin looking at those in Exodus chapter 25. 
is that is the uh, law of God with regards to the ceremonial law. And uh, that deals specifically with how the tabernacle is to be constructed, what material is to be used, how the priests are to do their ministry in the tabernacle, and uh, how they are to proceed and when they are to do those things. And so there's going to be some very specific things when it comes to the ceremonial law. Uh, But the judgments of God deals with uh, the nation of Israel as they were a nation, and how they were to interact with one another, how they were to treat one another, and how they were to respond to the law, how the judges are going to be able to discern when two men come before them who is right and who is in the wrong. And so the judgments are there to provide a guide for the judges. And the way it was done then is that it would not just be one judge, but often it would be a multiplicity of judges who would be sitting in the sense on a bench judging the people of Israel uh, by going by those parameters and those principles and those judgments that are laid out in Exodus 21, 22. And here we come to chapter 23 and he says, all right, I've told you Uh, how to discern and how to make the proper judgment in certain cases. But here he gives a warning to those who come to this judicial system and place themselves in this judicial system, whether they be witnesses, whether they be plaintiffs, accusers, or whether they be judges. And he gives them a number of warnings here because here he says that whether you act as a witness or as an accuser or as a defender or even as a judge, are you going to reflect the character of God or not? And so he's instructing them to judge righteous judgment. What I would like to do here is simply do this. Go through the portion of Scripture we read from Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, down to verse 9, to uh, see what he is teaching his people here and how the judges are to carry out righteous judgment, and then see how we today in the 21st century can also apply those same judgments in the life of the church and in our lives generally as Christians Because just as they would judge righteous judgment and so reflect the character of God, we today are also instructed to judge righteous judgment to also reflect the character of God. But there are some pitfalls along the way that might prevent us or cause us to judge unrighteously. And we have to be aware of those things. So what are those things? The first thing we see in verse 1 is he first addresses those who come in this judicial system as witnesses. If you think about the judicial system, it's much like today, where you would have someone who makes an accusation. And if you think about a courtroom, here is the general setting at that time. There would be a primary judge who would uh, go forth with the proceeding of the court. Along the bench would be other judges who would stand there and who would try to discern who was right and who was in the wrong. And the majority who would vote who was guilty and who was innocent, 
the majority would decide whether someone was to be punished or whether someone was to be declared innocent. And so you have the judge and the judges who sit on the bench, but then you have the one who comes to the courtroom who stands as the accuser. We understand based upon the law of Israel that you cannot come by yourself as an accuser. You have to have witnesses with you. Uh, it, it was established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so you have the plaintiff or the accuser, but often the accuser come in, comes in this judicial system with witnesses. And he comes, the accuser, accusing another man. So you have the one who is being accused, and he might also bring his witnesses. And so you have the judges, you have the accuser, the accused, the accuser has his witnesses, and the accused would also have his witnesses, and they appear before the judges. And the first area he deals with is with those who are witnesses. And we look at this, and notice verse 1, Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Now here I believe it could apply to both sides, whether it is the one who is the accuser or whether it is the one who's the accused. In other words, one of them is in the wrong. In other words, the accuser could come and he has been violated. He has been stolen from and he says, I know who's done it and somebody else saw it. And he brings the witness who saw this man steal from him. Uh, and so he may uh, make that accusation, but then the accuser comes and says, I did not steal from it. When he said I stole from it, I bring here a witness who is here to say that I was not in that place at that time uh, when I, uh, that, that I, that I, so I did not steal. And so we see here that this witness can bring with him a false witness. But it could also be true for the accuser. You see, the accuser who may accuse the, uh, uh, the uh, one who's being accused of being a thief, he may bring with him a false witness and say, Hey, all you need to do is come to court with me. I know you weren't there, but all you need to say is that you saw him. And so here he gives a warning to those who stand as a witness. Now I want you to notice here, because in this he says, Thou shalt not raise... A false report. He's talking here about bearing false witness. Bearing false witness. Uh, this might, we might refer to this today as committing perjury. Lying, uh, when you stand as a witness, a witness is supposed to simply be a recorder of what he has seen. He is not supposed to come up with an invention. He is not supposed to do things out of malice, out of lying, or out of hatred for somebody else. And so he comes, this is a deep offense because he comes under the guise of justice. But he does not know whether the man has, is guilty of doing so. But when he says, thou shalt not raise a false witness, the word here raise in verse 1 means literally to lift. It means both to accept and to advance a lie. So let's say that a man comes and he accuses another man of stealing an ox from him. And that it's not true. 
But he believes that this man has done it. And so he brings with them a witness, and this witness has not seen anything. He is not privy to the situation, but the accuser says, only if you testify with me, the judge will hear you. And he says, I know, I'm going to convince you, I saw him. I know you did not see him, but I saw him, and you're my friend, you ought to believe me. And when he says, thou shalt not raise a false witness, don't accept it and don't advance it. If you were not privy, if you were not there to see, you should not accept that nor should you advance it. Put not thine hand with the wicked. We might put it in the positive way. Show charity to your neighbor's good name. Do not accept your friend's accusation and stand as a witness for your friend to the character assassination of another neighbor whom you do not know whether he's done that. That's a grave injustice. And so a warning is given here to those who are who stand as a witness. We're going to deal with this a little, a little later, but now he turns in verse 2 to those who are judges. And notice here as he deals with the judges in verse 2, he says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude... To do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many, notice, to rest judgment. And so here he is talking, I believe, to the judges because he says, you have to make sure that you exercise proper judgment. But he says, notice, he's going to give from verse 2 down to verse 9 a series of instructions to the judges specifically. In verse 2 he says, first of all, here is the, the first rule. Don't be overruled or influenced by a multitude. We might put it this way, by a mob. Don't be swayed and influenced by a majority. You see, judges that sat on a bench, uh, one of the things, the rules that they implemented was that the majority would decide the case. The majority would pronounce judgment. And here's what would happen. They would start often with the younger judges. The reason why they did that is they did not want the older judges to say their judgment first because for fear that the younger judges might be influenced by the older judges. And so the younger judges would judge first and then they would go in that order to the oldest and they would speak and make their judgment. And he says, you must not be influenced by the multitude. The younger judges would vote first, so as to not influence, uh, uh, not be influenced by the vote of their seniors. And, but generally speaking here, not only that, does that apply to the bench, but it could also apply, let's say a crime has been committed, and here you come to the courtroom, to the judicial system, and there's a mob outside. And they're all shouting and screaming, guilty, he's guilty, he's guilty, he's guilty. And the judges hear that again and again and again and again. And that influences their judgment. They are not to judge based on the multitude, the desire of the multitude. He says, be influenced not by the people but by the law. 
By the way, we've seen, I think, in America in the last few years, a gross negligence where you have always mobs outside of courtrooms. And I believe in many cases where judges and juries have made the wrong decision because they've been primarily influenced by a mob. They want to be accepted by the multitude, and so therefore they have complete disregard for the law because they want to be accepted by the people. That's a common thing. But God says that is not right. You see, the people ought not to be concerned by, with the people, they ought to be primarily concerned with the law, with the judgments that God has given them. We must be judged. Here's the truth here, the, the, the overarching truth. We must, the people of Israel must be judged by the master, not by the servants. You see, God is the one who gave those judgments. God is the one who gave the authority to the judges to judge. And so they, in essence, they are not being judged by God's servants. They are being judged by God. And it is not right for the judges to all of a sudden be swayed by a multitude, to be swayed by a people, to be influenced to where now they do not regard the law anymore, but they consider ultimately and only the law of God and the judgments of God. Because the people are to be judged by God, not by God's people. So he says, don't be overruled by a multitude. That's a danger for judges to be influenced by the mob. In verse 3, he gives another scenario that the judges might be tempted to uh, have the wrong judgment. In verse 3 he says, Neither shalt thou, shall thou countenance a poor man in his cause. Here's what he says. He says, Don't be swayed in your judgment by a man's poverty. Now, you remember we talked about that last, not uh, this morning, but last Sunday in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30 and 31, the Bible says, Men do not despise a man if he steal because he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall pay with all of his household. And what we understand here is that you understand the plight of the poor, but you do not alter the judgment because he is poor. Even though you have compassion on him, you do not allow your emotions to sway you away from the law. Don't be swayed by a man's poverty. Here is what he is teaching the judges. Wrong must always be punished. Wrongdoing must always be punished. He also tells them, just because it's a poor man, justice must never be biased. Justice must never be biased. Now hold your place here in Exodus. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1. He expounds on that in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1. <clears throat> Notice verse, uh, let's go down to verses 16 and 17. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verse 16 and 17. He says, And I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cause between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother, and the stranger that is with him. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment. In other words, don't be swayed by your emotions. 
whether a man is poor or whether a man is rich. But ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. And the cause that is too hard for you, bring it unto me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which ye should do. And so he's referring back to Exodus here. He said, that's what I commanded you originally. And what I was telling you is you should not be overruled or you should not be swayed by a man's poverty, by a man's circumstances. Just because you have compassion on him means that the law no longer applies. And by the way, in Deuteronomy 1, he says that applies to the Israelite as well as the stranger the one who's not an Israelite. It applies to the small as well as the great. Why? He says in Deuteronomy 1.17, because justice belongs to God. Here's what he says. Man has no right to overrule God. Man has no right to disregard the judgments of God because a man is poor or because a man is rich. It is not his place. Justice belongs to God and not man. So the poor must be treated fairly without consideration of his poverty, whether it is for his benefit or whether it is for his detriment. Later notice in verse 6 he says, Thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause. And so in other words, Uh, The judge might be tempted in both sides. He might, just because he's poor, have compassion and say, well, I guess we're not going to have the law apply because you're poor. He said, no, don't don't do that. But on the other side, he he, he says, well, don't take advantage. And because you have a prejudice for that man, uh, go ahead and punish him even though he's not guilty because he is poor. In other words, it could be that a man was accused because he was poor. Surely he stole. And although there was no witness, the judge might say, well, he is poor, and he does live in that area, so it's probably him, although he doesn't know. And the prejudice of his poverty blinds the judge from justice. So it could be either to his detriment or to his benefit. And so he says, don't be swayed by a man's poverty, by a man's status, whether it's an Israelite, a stranger, whether he is small, whether he is great, because justice belongs to God. Man does not have the right to overrule God in any judgment. There's a third thing he says. If we proceed, notice, let's uh, skip over verse 4 and 5. We're going to come back to them. Don't worry, I'm not skipping over those verses. We're going to come back to them. But I'm... uh, Uh, Interested here in the judges to continue on that theme. Verse 6, Thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause. Notice verse 7, Keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. Now I still believe here he's talking to the judges because he says, The innocent and righteous slay thou not. Well, who has the power to say, This man is going to be killed? The judge. The judges are the one who make that call. And so here he says, don't pervert judgment out of, well, we see that in verse 6, right? Out of prejudice for the poor. But in verse 7, don't participate in a false trial without basis. Don't participate in a false trial without a basis. Notice this, keep thee far from a false trial matter and the innocent and righteous slay thou not for I will not justify 
the wicked. You see, God says that He will personally condemn those who unjustly condemn others. Now, how would a judge participate in a uh, false trial without basis? Or, he says, keep thee far from a false matter. Well, here's one example. Someone comes to court without witnesses. He's a friend to the judge. The judge has no right to hear the case if there are no other witnesses but him. But yet he would proceed. And in that case, God says in this judgment for the judges, keep the far from a false matter. And the innocent and righteous slay thou not. And so it could be possible that a judge could be swayed when he gets into a false matter. And there are parameters for that. We'll see those. There were parameters about how many witnesses and things and the consequences. The judge also might be swayed to implement a greater consequence than the law required. And he's not to be involved in that. For example, on the laws of restitution. Right? If you, a man stole uh, an ox, well, how many, how, how many is, is he supposed to repay with? Uh, there were some specific things with regards to the judgment that, is, that was to be carried out. And so he says, don't participate in a false trial without a basis. He then goes and he says in verse 8, Thou shalt not, thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise and perverteth the words of the righteous. Here he says basically this to the judges, Don't take bribes to influence your better judgment. Don't take bribes to influence your better judgments. Why? Because this type of judgment, if you've taken a gift from the accuser or the one being accused, neither one, then immediately because of the gift received, you become unfair in your judgment. Why? Because a gift impacts the judge in two ways. He says, the gift itself blindeth the wise. What is he saying? The judge, because of a gift, becomes blind to justice. He can no longer properly apply the law. He possesses wisdom, but he does not use it. Why? Because his wisdom is overruled by the gift, by the bribe. And he is swayed or he is influenced. And by the way, most of that would not be done in a evident way. I'm giving you this gift so that you might rule in my favor. But it's done often inadvertently. Oh, I'll, I'll do this for you. Oh, no, no, it's okay. Oh, no, no, I, I insist. You see, that's a bribe. He says, receive not a gift. And notice here, I believe that it is uh, ambiguous for uh, purposefully. He doesn't say a specific gift. He doesn't say money. He says any gift, any favor, anything that someone might do for you. Why? Because you become blind to justice the moment you receive a gift. There's a second thing that impacts a judgment, and that is he becomes death to the innocent. Notice he says, For the gift blindeth the wise, and perverteth the words of the righteous. The words of, let's say, the one who is innocent, the one who is without guilt, may 
try to prove his innocence. But yet the judge is deaf to the innocence. He perverts the words of the righteous. Uh, To them, it's innocence, but because the gift, he becomes deaf to the innocent. The words of innocence are as words of guilt to him. That's what a gift does. A judge, judges are to take no bribes because bribes influence the better judgment of the judges. You see, he could condemn, he could either condemn the innocent or he could acquit the guilty. Either way, he is to take no bribes. And finally, he says in verse 9, Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. He says here, don't use your authority as a judge to oppress the stranger because he is a stranger. The law that you apply to the Israelites ought to apply to the stranger. And you are not to be swayed in your judgment simply because someone is a stranger. And why would that be a big deal? Well, because the stranger would have no recourse. He is not an Israelite. He doesn't have, uh, if you would, the same privileges that the children of Israel enjoyed in the land as far as the properties that was, uh, that was divvied out to the children of Israel. And he says, but yet you should not be swayed or influenced and don't use your authority to oppress the stranger simply because he is a stranger. Now, uh, we saw, we, th- this is specifically uh, applied to uh, those who are witnesses, those who are accusers, those who are being accused, and the judges. We could think, uh, within the judicial system, judge righteous judgment. Now, in the midst of these verses, there are two verses. And those two verses, at first I was looking at them, I thought, well, uh, they, they are out of place. But they're not. Now, it's the Word of God. It's not out of place. It's in perfect place. But, but notice verse 4 and 5. If thou meet thine enemies, ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back again. Now, are we here in the courtroom or we are outside the courtroom? We are outside the courtroom. He says if you have your uh, enemy's ox in the way, we're now stepping outside of the judicial system. We're talking now about everyday life. We're not talking about a crime committed. Uh, We're talking about if you see your enemy's ass or his ox wandering away, bring it back to your enemy. Verse 5. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. So if you see your enemy and and he's struggling, then you help him. And I, I was thinking, well, what is this doing here? I believe here he is communicating to the children of Israel the general spirit that ought to be present in all the people. You see, we have witnesses and we have accusers and those who are being accused and we have the judges, but what is to be the general spirit of the people in the land if the land is to carry out righteous judgment? 
ultimately, how would you identify the people of Israel? Is there any safeguard for the children of Israel so that they might not get involved into all kinds of judicial falsehoods? Well, I think it's the general spirit that is present among the children of Israel. And that spirit that is present is this. It's the spirit of love thine enemy. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Now with this in mind, let me show you that this is the truth of all of God's word. Hold your place here. Go with me to the book of Proverbs in chapter 25. Proverbs chapter 25. Notice Proverbs 25 and uh, verse 21 and 22. <clears throat> this is, by the way, quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 12. Romans 25, 21. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Right? So Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 12. Uh, notice, if thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. Now, turn with me to the book of Matthew. Let's see the teaching of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus Christ here is specifically teaching His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And notice what He says in verse 43. He is trying to correct the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, that had been distorted throughout the centuries, and He proceeds to correct that. Notice what He says in Matthew 5.43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That's their interpretation. Is that true? Is there any verse in the Old Testament that says, Love thy neighbor, hate thine enemy? Absolutely not. So where do they get that? He says, But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which disciple use you and persecute you. Notice here, it's important here, Why do this? That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them that love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not, verse 46, do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Here is how Jesus corrects the teaching of the rabbis throughout the century leading up to when He came. He says, you all have misdefined neighbor. You have limited the scope of your neighbor. And you've said that your neighbor is only the person whom you love and whom loves you. But I say that your neighbor is not just your neighbor, 
but it is also your enemy. And so Jesus uh, redefines neighbor, which has been which had been misdefined. And here's what he says. Here's what you do to your enemy. You ready? Love them. Bless them. Do good to them. And pray for them. That's what you do to your enemy. Shocking, isn't it? Yes. But then he gives them the main point, verse 45 and 48. Love them, bless them, do good to them, pray for them. Why? To reflect the character of God. To reflect the character of God. He says, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. That's how what God does. But lastly, he says to them in verse 46 and 47, there is no reward in showing love to your neighbor. If you go back to Exodus 23, go back with me there to Exodus 23, you'll find that there, there is no instruction where God says to his people, now, if your neighbor whom you love and his ox is going astray, would you return to your neighbor that you love his ox? There is no need to say that, is there? Why? Because you would do that. If it's your friend, if it's your neighbor, he loves you, you love him, you're going to do that. It doesn't need to be said. In other words, there's no reward in that. But God brings his people here, do you see in Exodus 23, to the the two extremes. He doesn't deal with the middle. There's no need to deal with the middle. He says, look, judges, witnesses, uh, accusers, those who are being accused... Be careful not to use the judicial system to your advantage for your falsehoods and to carry out the wrong judgment. And don't be influenced and swayed by the people or by someone's poverty or by someone's riches. Don't involve yourself in a false matter. But but here's the, in the midst of this, here's the spirit that ought to be permeated among the children of Israel is that they ought to love their enemies. Because if that spirit is present then you won't have to deal with the corrupt judicial system. Do you know why there is a corrupt, in a great part, corrupt judicial system in any country? You look at the general spirit of, that, of the people there. And I will show you a corrupt system. You see, it's absolutely nothing for somebody to love someone that loves you. There's no reward in that. There's no gain in that. There is no significance to that. But there there is significance to those who are called the people of God. And their general spirit and disposition towards one another. Let me put it this way. If a child of Israel, if the general spirit of the children of Israel was to help their enemies is it likely that they are to bring false accusation against their fellow Israelites no why well because right the enemy is the one that you have by nature the greater tendency to hate and to mistreat But if you do good to your neighbor and you bless them and you pray for them and you take the most extreme difficult thing in your life to do 
If you do that, then in those other lesser areas, you are most likely not to fail. You see, what the rabbis had done during the time of Christ is they had narrowed down the law of God. Instead of looking at the greater issue, and that is the general spirit of the people in Israel, that they that ought to permeate the land. Now, <clears throat> we see that he deals with the judges, witnesses, plaintiffs, accusers, and he deals with the general spirit of the nation of Israel. But how do we apply this to our lives? So we read what Jesus taught. We can read and spend some time in the New Testament epistles. But let me summarize it this way. How can we apply this to our lives? Because guess what? We are, we are to judge righteous judgment. We are commanded to judge righteously. Now, we do not live in a nation as Israel. We don't have a court system. Uh, we live in America, the United States of America. There is a court system there. We don't have a judicial system in the church, although we could say church discipline, but it's not in that sense where you take someone to law. The church has no authority to put someone to death. So in that sense, it's not a judicial system as the judicial system in America, which has the right to put people to death, or that Israel did at that time. Uh, but yet we, we still judge today. And what we learn here from this text that we can apply to our lives today is that the judgments that we read about, whether they're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that the judgments are based from the character of God. They're based from the character of God. The character of God that we find here in Exodus chapter 23 is the same character that God has today. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. His rules do not change. His judgments do not change. And so we are to think about the judgments. The way we judge is based and rooted in the very character of God. So that in itself ought to awaken us to say, Am I going to be an unjust judge? That's the tendency of human nature, by the way. Well, I know we're commanded to judge, and we have the two extremes. <laughs> uh, some people, uh, they say, well, don't judge anything. Uh, well, that in itself is a judgment. And then on the extreme, he says, well, we've got to judge everything, and you've got to criticize everything. And, and often, the people that are emphasizing this so much, they judge everything and everybody, even when they don't know anything. They're not judging righteously. It should be based on the character of God. So here's how we can judge righteously. Truth, therefore, should permeate the life of the Christian. Truth should permeate the life of the Christian. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 says, Speak every man truth to his neighbor. Put away lying and speak every man truth with his neighbor. Here's what we, uh, how we can apply this to our lives. Lies should not be accepted nor propagated. In this sense, uh, let me put it this way. If somebody says something about a fellow believer and you have no knowledge about it, don't accept it and don't propagate it. That's what he says in Exodus chapter 23. He says, if you're a witness but you have no knowledge of it, don't accept it. And don't propagate it. 
And we are to do the same as believer. By the way, in 1 Timothy 5.19, he says to Timothy, he says, uh, don't uh, receive an accusation against an elder except in the presence of two or three witnesses. At the hand of two or three witnesses. What is he saying? It's, it, it would be the human nature. You see, human nature likes a juicy story on somebody. On somebody. And when we have no knowledge of it, and we accept it, and we propagate it, that we are not permeated with the truth. Our lives is being permeated with lies. Truth should permeate the life of the Christian. So judgments are based on the character of God. Therefore, truth should permeate the life of the Christian. And here are some things that we have to be aware of in our own lives. We have to beware of the influence of many. You see, it will affect our ability to make righteous judgment. When we are influenced and swayed by many. Well, that's just what many people think. Uh, well, that's what many people say. And we make the wrong judgment because we are influenced by the people. And I like to put it this way today in America. We are swayed by statistics. Well, here's the statistics and here's the studies. Now, well, if, if that's the study, if that's what the study says, then, uh, then uh, therefore it, it must be right. Can I touch into politics? for? I'm not going to ask you permission. I'll, I'll do so. So within... Um, uh, let's say conservative. Now, I, I'm not a conservative. I'm a Bible believer. Because I'm a Bible believer, a lot of the conservative values I hold to. But within today conservatism, there is a strong movement that has already been accepted. For example, gay marriage within conservatism. Why? Well, because the people there are happy and they're not hurting anyone. And the look, many of them are becoming conservative. And so uh, these people, they must be all right. No, it's still wrong behavior. And it should not be accepted by Christians or in any church. Do you recognize that today a majority of those who claim to be Christians say that a church should be okay with same-sex marriage? In the United States of America. In the, in the church, not in the world. In the church. It's the wrong judgment. Why? Because people have been influenced by many. In the political realm, their desire is, well, well we got to broaden our horizon. we got to bring more people into the tent. When, when you do that, you will often misjudge. Beware of the influence of many, for it will affect your ability to make righteous judgment. We also have to beware of the influence of prejudice on others, which is often unjustified. Now, he talks about in Exodus chapter 23 about the poor and the strangers, and he says, don't be prejudiced towards the poor, or even it could be to the rich. Today, there's prejudice towards poor people, but there's also prejudice towards rich people. There's prejudice to people who aren't like you, and he says, look, that should not affect. And by the way, Romans 2 says very clearly that God is not a respecter of persons. And so the people of God should not be either. And we are often influenced by prejudice. You know what the, the complicated thing about prejudice is, though? That when we have prejudices, we often don't know we have them. 
We don't know we have them. That's the whole idea of a prejudice. You don't know you have it. And he says whether poor, stranger, uh, whether it's good or bad, so it could be this, right? right? There's, there's two sides to this. There could be, well, somebody is poor, and so you have a prejudice against the poor, and so you put them down, as the book of James says they were doing in the church. Or it could be on the other side, when somebody is poor, says, well, because he is poor, you can accuse his behavior, and our country today is doing that with the people here that are stealing stores, looting the stores, and here's the excuse you often hear, well, they're poor, they probably need it. So when, let me just put it this way, when you steal a high-end store, items that are worth thousands of dollars, you don't need food. But that's the excuse. You see, you can make excuse on both, uh, on both sides, whether good or bad. We should not be influenced by prejudice, whether good or bad, we should judge righteously. You see, that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian and having the Word of God, is we can make calls that will never change. Same-sex marriage is always wrong. That will never change. It will never change. It's wrong. Um, Stealing is always wrong. (laughs) It doesn't matter for what reason you do it. It's wrong, and there ought to be consequences for it. I'm not going to park on this too long, but Beware of the influence of prejudice on others, which is often unjustified. And also we see that we should beware of the influence of personal gain. Personal gain. You see, often we make judgment based on what we gain from the judgment. Now here in Exodus 3, it talks about don't take bribes. But often we judge others around us based on what we gain from it. Let me give you the, the, the clearest example I can find. Did you hear about so-and-so? I saw them do that. Can you believe they did that? I don't think they're really good Christians. And you know all of a sudden what I do? The reason I do this is because I want to prop myself up. There's a gain involved for me. So the reason I tear somebody down is so that I can prop myself up. Personal gain. That's in a sense that's a bribe. I'm going to share information with somebody that has nothing to do with the information about somebody else and I really don't know what that person is dealing with but I'm going to use that information to prop myself up to talk about how great and spiritual I am. Beware of the influence of personal gain. It always clouds our judgment. But also we have to consider our general spirit toward all men. I believe here that's the answer. What is our general spirit toward all men? You see, if we examine our general spirit toward all men, and if that is where it ought to be, then most likely we don't have to worry about making the wrong judgment. And finally, if you open with me and turn to Matthew chapter chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Here is the greatest way that we can make sure that we judge righteous judgment. Of uh, Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7. Here it is. You ready for it? If you want to judge your fellow man correctly, here is what you must do. Verse, uh, Matthew 7 verse 1. 
Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then, then shalt thou see clearly, and you will be able to judge righteous judgment. Then you'll be able to help him with his mote. But first, you must deal with your own beam. The most effective way for us to accurately and faithfully and truthfully judge our fellow man is if we thoroughly, truthfully, and sincerely judge ourselves righteously. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he the institution of the Lord's Supper, he, he tells them that they are to examine themselves and judge themselves lest they be condemned with the world. And if we judge ourselves, we will not be judge of the Lord. The surest way for us to judge righteously is for us to judge ourselves. Why? Because that very thing, that very practice of judging ourselves will lessen our time to judge others will help us to see that often we don't judge others accurately or as deeply or as faithfully as we judge ourselves. To judge ourselves thoroughly, sincerely, and truthfully is the surest way to judge all judgment, all other men righteously. Is there anything that would cloud our judgment more than hypocrisy? There is nothing that clouds our judgment in a greater way than hypocrisy. And so let's judge ourselves righteously. We are commanded to judge. By the way, every day of our lives we judge. Whether it's in our work, whether it's in our family, we are always carrying out judgment. There, that is inevitable. All I'm saying is we have to make sure that we judge righteous judgment. So let's consider the character of God. Some things that we need to be aware of in our own lives, but also faithfully and accurately judge ourselves.